before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 19. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Rich Diaz with Acorn Macro Consulting. Uh, hair is still looking fantastic. And we got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management, who is desperate in need of a haircut. Um, welcome back to the show, amigos. Um, as always, just a little preface here that uh, all we ask is that you share this episode with one friend, one family member, et cetera, as we continue to try to grow the Looney Hour community. Uh, again, appreciate the support and the feedback. But start off this week, again, I'm, I'm kind of getting sick of talking about it, but uh, because it is an important data point, we will touch on it briefly, so bear with us. Um, Canada's CPI inflation coming in. Uh, what 5.1%, correct me if I'm wrong, 5.1%, uh, the highest since 1991, good year. Um, and uh, yeah, so we got a 30-year high in CPI inflation, which is above expectations, which kind of continues to be the story, which is central bankers have been wrong. It hasn't been transitory. Inflation's been a lot stickier than people have you know, imagined. And, you know, there's certainly concerns that this is going to be entrenched in, in, you know, people's, people's minds, psychological buyer habits, et cetera. I mean, I certainly see it a lot, especially, I mean, I'm in the real estate space. And so I think like we've seen, you know, tremendous amounts of inflation and, and for developers, you know, trying to get product materials, labor, uh, you know, our, our sector in particular has been hit probably the hardest. And so, yeah, I mean, I see it day to day, but uh, it seems obviously widespread, but we'll turn it over to the Tom Brady of macro rich Diaz for the full quick synopsis on his views and unpack the inflation print for us. Um, okay, cool. Thank you. Um, congratulations to Matt Stafford. <laughs> um, anyways, and, and the Super Bowl champions. But anyway, okay, here are we, we go. Are we going to the... start, oh, start calling you the Matt Stafford? No, Matt, God, right? no, please. I'd rather, I'm more, I'd rather be mortified about being Tom Brady than being mortified. By Tom. <laughs> anyways, okay, yeah. here we go. So let's make this really quick because I think we're all sort of bored about talking about this. So a couple points. You said 5.1. Um, goods inflation, I thought was really interesting. So they split it in between goods and services. Goods hit 7.2. Again, another ridiculously, you know, decades long high. Food, which we all um, enjoy from time to time, um, is now again climbing. So that's really hurting, sorry, lower income people, as we know. And to remind everyone that uh, these numbers are probably higher than the official numbers. But anyways, all right. So a couple more things and we'll round, bring it home. Let's then move on. Number one is shelter component, which we've been on for a long, long time now, is 39% of the core CPI basket, for those of us unaware. And that is a hit um, 6.2 and is becoming a growing um, contribution. This is true also in the US, which we talked about several times. Um, and then, so I'm going to a couple more points here, and then I'm going to hit you with some math. And then we'll, we'll send, we'll, we'll switch gears. But um, the BOC core measures. So these are the preferred measures of inflation. There's loads and loads of papers on the Bank of Canada website that discuss this. Both, So all three of them, one's a trimmed mean, one's a factor mean, and one you know, the third one, I always forget what it is. You can look them up. Uh, but these are the preferred measures of inflation that um, eliminate transitory factors. They're now at you know 20-year highs as well. So we got four, three, and the other one's around two. So you guys can you can check them out. We'll put them up on the on the video. But it's just incredible the the measures that the BOC themselves designed um, to to keep an eye out for these kinds of things and to help with monetary policy. Um, they're just ratcheting higher and higher. And then the last two things is one um, core inflation tends to track uh, producer price indexes doesn't always work, but it's working really, really well now. And if you look at the PPI X energy, um, it's, we shouldn't be surprised if core inflation hits 
six, maybe even seven, but probably at least six. So that's it's 3.5 from right now. And I don't think we should be surprised if it hits five, five and a half, six. That's incredible, incredible kind of overshoot. And then the tiny little piece of math that I have is, you know, shelters 39%. If it rises is to, um, you know, if it rises to 3%, um, so if it's if it settles rather at 3%, then the rest of the basket, the other 60%, right, has to be much, much lower than two for you to get that, you know, that desired um, 2% CPI. Does that make sense? So if you have shelter, which is a big chunk, and that means the rest of the CPI basket has to be much, much lower than your average, right? That stated average. I probably garbled that, but the point is, is that it's not transitory and for everybody to look out for the shelter component. That's a wrap. Steve, I think I did that pretty quickly, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is shocking that we printed trillions of dollars and suddenly have inflation. Shocking. Um, but uh, Keith, I don't know if you have any comments just to, to quickly sort of sum everything up here. Last yeah, comments, quick. final thoughts. Okay, very, very quick. Um, this starts with a story. <laughs> so um, I love what I love about inflation today. We're all just rounding it to a, a whole number. So like 5%, 6 <laughs> so 7%. And you guys may not realize this, but back in the early O's, the, uh, who, do, who does the, the inflation numbers in the U.S.? Is it Department of... I think it's the Census Bureau, but I always screw that up. Yeah, yeah I forget Bureau. which one it does. So they, they were actually calculating it to the second and even third decimal point. They still and, do, but they, I think. But they, yeah, but they were only posting it to one. And then finally, they, they decided, you know what? We're going to post it to two decimal points. And Wall Street said, yeah, this is, this is great. This is, you know, and everyone got excited about it. And I'm sitting there saying, geez, guys, like, you're, I don't know why that's so, so great. But anyway, but anyway, the point is, years ago, inflation was so benign, it didn't matter that, you know, all of the economists, you know, in, in, the, in the back room, they wanted to report this number, the two and three decimal points. Like, that's how cool they thought this was. You know, fast forward, you know, 20 plus years later, we're just rounding it up. Pretty soon, maybe we'll go to, you know, around the nearest five. So that, that's one observation with the story. Okay. Um, so the real quick thing is I look at it from a market perspective all the time. It, it, it's starting to play out the way I think it's going to, the, the bond markets are, they're still getting whacked almost every day here. That could be over soon, but uh, remember we, we have equity markets are selling off. Currencies are selling off. Credit spreads are selling off. Everything is getting, you know, hit pretty hard here. Um, so it, it's lined up exactly for Powell to take the fall. And the last thing would be really to have the U.S. dollar, you know, go ratchet up pretty higher. So uh, that we're on the verge of maybe that happening. So what could happen if you actually look at estimates for U.S. Federal Reserve price action or rate hikes? They're not only are they calling for rate hikes, but further out they're calling for rate cuts. So they're they're sort of seeing it going like this and down again. And then Rich, I think you uh, tweeted out the was it the two year yield that you tweeted out a couple of days yeah. ago? I saw it. It's a beautiful beautiful chart. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, but it really shows how messed up financial markets are. Sorry, how messed up the Fed is and other central banks with trying to align this with what's happening with, with the real world. But my point is, though, that a lot of these things in the markets are way ahead of central banks. And sometimes they can sort of make the they may not even need to do rate cuts at the end of the day because we get things would get so bad from a financial market perspective that they could come out and say, hey, you know, we don't want to do this. And, and by the way, uh, some, some of the people on my network, they were sharing with me that over last weekend, uh, Yellen, she's the finance story. She's the treasury Finman these days. Yeah, treasury in the US, of course, Finman everywhere else. Uh, there's a pretty big push around the world from the treasury departments. Hey, they want more QE, not less QE. So, uh, you know, that's likely where we're going on the, on the backside of, of this year. So anyway, that, that's it on the inflation I side. Yeah, no, and actually, I want to touch on this uh, to sort of take it a slightly different direction, but somewhat of the same here is, uh, <clears throat> Rich, I don't know. So can you comment on like, I mean, obviously, we got the yield curve flattening, uh, which people are kind of arguing is okay, you know, or is that we're getting closer and closer to like that potential recession signal. I don't know how much weight you're putting on that right now, but I think that's that's somewhat of the argument that, yeah, the Fed's almost like too late kind of thing. It's like you, you, they probably should have hiked earlier. 
they waited too long and now you know, they're arguably tightening into a slowdown again. And we, we might disagree on that, but I'm curious kind of to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So that's a really good, good point. We've been looking at that a lot internally and we'll, we'll share the chart or the chart. Um, let me just make a note of that. We'll share the chart people who aren't aware of this. So what is the yield curve? The yield curve is the interest rate um, across different maturities. So one month, three months, six months, two year, 10 year, 30 year, whatever. And there's been a lot of research, um, a lot of it produced by some of the very, very smart people who work at the Federal Reserve um, and strategists and investors over the years. And they, they posit that an inversion of the yield curve um, tends to signal or lead or predict um, a recession between six to 18 months. Now, that number will vary depending on who does the research, but more or less, when the, inver- when the yield curve inverts, um, you sort of inevitably get a recession. Now, people have argued that this has always worked. There are some people, probably a minority of them, who say it doesn't. Um, what is an inverted yield curve? An inverted yield curve is when the two-year interest rate, so the shorter-term interest rate, is higher than the 10-year interest rate. And you say, well, why is that inverted? Because normally you have the opposite. You say the yield curve is 10 minus 2. So if your 2 is higher than your 10, you've gone below 0 and you are inverted. And when you plot that chart, which we'll definitely share, um, you can see that over time in the United States, let's be very specific about that, in the United States, it tends to predict or forecast or lead a recession six to 18 months. Um, There's loads of research on this online. If you just Google Fed plus research plus yield curve, you'll find out shitloads of stuff on this. It's really interesting. doesn't necessarily always work. And the other thing I think is important to note is that not all recessions were created equal. I'm on the record as saying, I think 2016 was a recession. I think late 2018 was a recession. I might be the only person in the world who thinks that, but I'll I'll go to my grave believing that. Anyways, um, and so what we're seeing right now is I don't know what it is today. I haven't looked, but you know, it's the, 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 the yield curve is sort of screaming in and there are people who are really worried about growth as a result. Um, the other thing I want to say was, um, why is that just quickly? Why is that important? So normally the front end of the curve is indicative. So different parts of the curve, different parts of bonds will have something called like term premiums. They'll have credit um, credit component. Is the is it um, is the borrower credit worthy or not? Then you'll have some kind of growth premium. There's a bunch of different things, and you'll have basis risk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so in general, and Keith will definitely correct me when I screw this up. The longer end of the curve has some kind of inflation component and a growth component, as well as uh, some kind of term premium, etc. And then the front end of the curve let's just say in simple terms, is very much tied to the interest rate expectations. And so the reason the yield curve is inverting is because the, there's no, the market is basically does not buy the growth story, e.g. the far end of the curve is staying anchored and the front end of the curve keeps creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. Ergo, you get an inversion. Is that, I think I nailed that. That's a good, <laughs> I think that's a really good explanation. I'll give you my... The explanation I would give to my uh, my mom was that <laughs> to to Willis oh, yeah, the okay. dog Can to Willis yeah so I have, I have a a Bernadoodle for everyone um, <laughs> so part Bernie's Mountain Dog Poodle and he's named after uh, Patrick Willis big 49ers football player years ago okay so this whole thing about the yield curve stuff if you're not in the industry it might be a bit confusing but just say I'm going to lend money to Steve and I want him to pay it back to me two years from now. And I'm going to lend money to Rich and Rich has to pay me back 10 years from now because a lot more bad, remember the bond work, bond market works off bad things happening because when bad things happening, increase the probability of me not getting my money back. So usually there's a higher chance of bad things happening the longer the time frame is. So with only two years up, I know, I think Steve can pay me back. You know, he's a big time realtor in Kitslano. So he's, he's going to pay me back. Rich, on the other hand, he has 10 years and he's hanging out in, in, in the school gym in Portugal and, you know, on all these places in London and, and stuff. So, you know, a lot more bad things can happen with that 10 year loan to Rich. That's a norm. So because of that, I'm going to charge Rich a higher interest rate on the bond than I'm going to charge Steve. So I had to get compensated for taking more risk on Rich than I am on Steve. An inverted yield curve 
is when I'm going to charge Steve a higher interest rate on the loan and Rich a lower rate. And the reason for that is because we're entering a recession and boy, bad things can happen. And recessions are short, guys. Like they don't, they don't need to go on too long. But for the next one or two years, now all of a sudden now, I believe there's a higher probability that Steve won't be able to pay me back. So therefore, Steve, you got to pay up to get my money. Meanwhile, Rich has 10 years to work things out with his business. He get a slump in two years, big deal. You know, he'll work his way through it. But that, that's, the, that's the why you know, yield curves will move that way. So if anyone is still with us right now, I hope you are, but, but <laughs> Jesus, that's, that's heavy stuff. Let's move on to something more interesting. Uh, no, I know. I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a good primer. Um, I just wanted to say like, cause I, you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you, so much of interest rates and, you know, fed speak, central banker speak is like psychological. Uh, what I have noticed a lot, what I can tell you, um, this is, probably the first you might hear about on the show here is, is what we're seeing at least in Vancouver with my contacts in Toronto as well in the real estate space is that we are very, very early stages. We are starting to see that pullback. Um, and, and the pullback is a lot of it is actually, we're seeing the psych psychology around um, buyers is actually starting to change. So, you know, in January, December, January, you know, even early parts of February, people like really had this like fear of missing out. They're like, Oh my God, like prices just keep going up. I got to get in. And they're bidding up these prices to like just kind of blow off top. And now over the last week, week and a half, we keep hearing more and more stories, you know, houses that would set an, a day for, to collect all the offers. And, you know, we normally would get five, six, seven, eight offers. Some of them are going no offers. And so it's very early and we're starting to see that. And some of that is a lot around a shift around, uh, again, buyer psychology, which is, you know what? Re mortgage rates are going up. We hear, we're reading the news. And you know, a lot of these people, I would say, to be honest, aren't overly sophisticated, but they just read, you know, the CBC news and CBC news says, Hey, you know, your TD bank says rates are going to go up six times this year. And so they're starting to read that. And you actually see, you know what, we're going to, we're not going to go crazy here. We're going to hold off. We're going to wait and see. And so we're seeing more of this wait and see approach starting to emanate. So the buyer psychology of the housing market is very slowly, very early days, but it is actually starting to shift. And long story short is I think that is important because, you know, particularly in Canada here, real estate basically drives the entire economy. And so <laughs> that really filters through into what we've all been talking about the show. And I think we're all still in the same view is that the bank of Canada is probably not going to have to raise rates as many times as everybody thinks they need to. Uh, because I think a lot of this is going to take care of itself. So that's all I got. Um, what else? We actually wanted to shift gears into rich. Everyone's begging for riches, uh, updated oil thesis. Um, before I get into rich's oil thesis, which I'm actually kind of curious to hear where the things are at, uh, last little bit on the real estate front is uh yeah as you guys know i'm fairly active in calgary so i keep a close eye on that housing market and uh so i was chatting with a couple of large developers over there and uh it's interesting enough what's happening is so that the the condo market in calgary was like flooded like there's just there's a lot of land in calgary condos typically aren't a good investment because there's just a lot of land so you can continue to expand you can buy a single family house in the inner city for five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. so it's like well i buy a one-bedroom condo What's happened over the last, you know, six months or so is all the investors from Toronto have actually been flooding the Calgary market and snapping up all these pre-sales. Basically, you have these big wig Toronto realtors that are pre-sale uh, people where they basically only focus on investor base that's, that sells pre-sales. And they're, they, they're basically, um, they were approached, a lot of them were approached by developers in Calgary and they put together a pitch deck and they sold all of their investors in, of, in Toronto of the idea of buying in Calgary. Hey, look, you can go buy an inner city condo in Calgary, a one bedroom for $250,000 in cash flow. And so interestingly enough, that's all, um, that Calgary market has just completely taken off from East coast investors. Um, and obviously I think the Calgary market, as much as it's booming because it's cheap, some of this is, is oil dependent as well. And so the thesis right now, I think is incredibly bullish. The sentiment around oil is bullish right now. And so I think that might be playing a part of it, but I'd love to hear Rich, your thoughts, um, in terms of how you see things shaping up here. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I'm gonna I'm on the record as saying I'm I'm an oil bull. I'm an energy market bull, and it's something that I've. It's been really quite. It's one of those things that's um, sort of played out how I've expected. Um, and I think it's really something really important to talk about because we're Canadians, and I think because the oil is so important to our economy, um, a sizable chunk of not the people who work in it, but the amount of our current account balance, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to step back and sort of just give a quick little, as the oil, as the oil prices continue to ratchet up, as oil continue, the energy and oil and gas sector outperforms, it outperformed, it was the best performing sector and, and one of the best performing subsectors last year. It's the best performing sector by a mile um, this year. Um, and I continue to be really, really bullish. And I think it's important that, you know, our listeners and, and, and sort of people like me um, who are at Canadian and our investors sort of get a handle on sort of what's going on there and why I think it's just so important. So I'll quickly just like nail out a couple things. And if you guys are more interested, you know, I'm always happy to speak offline. But um, so, yeah, so I think um, it's also a function, I think, politically, I think it's 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 also one of those classic examples of um, unintended consequences this is with respect to politics. Um, and when you sort of let, you know, your ideals get in the way of, you know, the, the brass tacks, the facts. So, um, so demand, I think oil. So this idea that oil consumption is going to fall, I think is just something that everyone needs to sort of get out of its, out of their head. Yes. Eventually oil will, we will use less of it, but right now global oil consumption is about a hundred million barrels a day. Each barrel of oil is about 159 liters. So that's per day. That consumption of oil um, you know, people forecast it falling. Um, I think it's important to understand where that consumption comes from and who's the next sort of in line to consume it. So, and I'll make this quick. So 38% of that oil is consumed in the Asia Pacific region. So you click right off the bat, you think India, you think um, China with, you know, two, three billion people, but then you have the Indonesias of the world, the Bangladesh, Pakistan. I mean, the population numbers with respect to that consumption is incredible. After that, you have North America, so US, and then you have e with 25%, the EU with 10, roughly 10. And then um, in third, well, not in third place, but Africa, which is very, very important with respect to population and is obviously very poor, but only consumes 4% of, of global oil. Now, um, you have to understand where the consumption comes is no nominally, you know, is going to come from where the population growth is and where people are accelerating into sort of new um, strata of um, economic, um, you know, potential GDP per output and et cetera. And to, to the point is, is oil is a freaking miracle. Um, it's an engineering and scientific miracle. It has extremely high energy density. It's relatively cheap to extract. We know exactly where it is. It's accessible. And so when you when people say that global oil consumption is going to, you know, just stall out at 120 million, 105, 110 million barrels a, a day, again, a day, just it's incredible the amount of energy that we consume. And it's important to know that you know, countries like uh, countries, excuse me, that's very bad. Uh, continents like Africa that have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who are just starting to consume, you know, fridges, uh, cars. Um, so much of that is energy. And guess what? Africa has a lot of it. So they produce about twice as much as what they consume. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, it's cheap, it's accessible, and they have it. And so this idea that we should be, now, I don't want to get into the moralistic ar argument about energy and telling poor people that they should not consume cheap and accessible energy. But I just, I think it's important to understand where the, the demand is coming from, where it's likely going to go. And the, the top headline message is that um, global oil consumption is not going anywhere. Add to that the fact that everyone's mothballing um, their nuclear power plants, which is a conversation for a different day. The idea that you're going to replace the literally trillions of terajoules of energy consumed per year with a bunch of solar panels which, by the way, take lots of carbon and high energy to, to, to build and wind farms again, same with it's just it's just not going to happen. I think there's this, frankly, a lie that's been told over and over. And I think we just need to move past it. And then on the supply thing, which I'll make a bit shorter, which is really, really the why I'm so bullish on this sector. 
um, is short-term inventories are super low. So I've, sh I've shared this chart on Twitter. Um, we won't share it on this space because it's just sort of too esoteric, but um, inventories are, are back down to sort of the, the average that we've seen for a long, long time. They were quite high and they're down. Why are they down? Because in, in their infinite wisdom, countries um, have been, you know, climate change is important and must be taken seriously. But unless supply, so what, we, what, what the, all the policies have basically been centered on supply. And what do I mean by that? Um, they, they've people like Mark Carney, who, anyways, I won't say, if you can't say anything nice about, don't say anything at all, has basically spent lots of his effort and time trying to squeeze out the funding, increasing the cost of capital for these oil companies to produce oil. And so what you're seeing is these companies are getting squeezed out of the capital markets. It's more and more, well, that's never, that's the goal. And so what does that mean? It means it's more and more expensive to take on new projects and they're more reticent to take on projects that may be risky and might have, you know, lots of reserves. So what does this mean? It means the CapEx, so capital expenditure and the search for, and um, basically finding, getting access to reserves has collapsed. So how do you measure that? CapEx relative to sales, CapEx relative to total assets for, um, for publicly traded companies is basically at a 25-year low. And um, other things that you would measure supply are things like rig counts. So it's a rig, an oil, literally an oil rig. There's offshore rigs, onshore rigs. There's, um, you know, there's uh, natural gas rigs. And now you could say, Richard, we're more efficient per rig. We can, we can produce more. Fine. But they're still, again, at, you know, at, they're on the floor. And the other thing that seems really important is the, the OPEC spare capacity argument, I think, is, is also sort of false. Yes, OPEC has a lot. What's OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC. And they produce, they control about 35, 40% of the global um, oil supply. And, you know, there's all this talk about them increasing their quota, increasing their quota. It's a cartel and they use, and it's a cartel of countries um, and they get organized in order to try their best to control the price of oil, to extract the most amount of money from the global economy as they can. The trick is over the last 20 years, their power has obviously fallen as the U.S. has become a much larger producer of oil. And there's always this like bearish argument on oil saying, well, OPEC can always just increase capacity. But the thing is, is that the same companies that have been, you know, squeezed out of the capital markets with respect to, um, you know, funding CapEx, they, a lot of them, they do it in these countries. So Royal Dutch Shell, for example, has lots of business, um, business interest in these OPEC countries. So what we're seeing, so basically the upshot is you have a situation where demand in my view, is not going anywhere, is at best going to remain flat at best for the next five, 10, who knows years. And a situation where the, the lot of the climate change policies and frankly, you know, the fact that these companies have been getting absolutely trounced in the markets over the last several years, um, the divestitures, um, you know, a lot of the stuff has basically reduced the supply a, in the short term, and B, has reduced the ability to meet the new demand, e.g. there's the, the number of new reserves coming on board is coming up. So for me, that's the reason I'm so obsessed with this topic is because oil is by far and away the most important commodity that human beings rely on every single day. Um, I'm interested in the truth and making money. And when those two things collide, I, have, I, I love it. And I think it's really important as Canadians, before we, you know, turn around and say, you know, we should just shut down all of our oil industry. And I think it's, we should be very, very, very careful about doing things like that. Um, and, you know, and I think that, yeah, that's, so that's, you know, now the question we're going to get into Russia in a second, you know, in the short term, you know, is war bad for oil demand? Keith will let us know when we move it, when we strip gears. But yeah, there's my oil, oil rant. Hopefully you guys learned something. Um, any questions from the, from the class? <laughs> yeah. I, before we get to Keith's commentary, I, I, I'm going to try to dumb this down and summarize everything Rich basically said, which is essentially oil or and energy is life. Thank you. That's exactly a really good way of putting it. Energy is life and energy is productivity. In order to be more, a more productive society, you need to consume more energy and basically we're at a situation today where 
the renewable sector isn't able to replace uh, oil. And so in order to be more productive, we're going to end up having to require and be more reliant on oil, at least in the near term. And, um, and I think it's a particularly precarious situation because if you look at it, you know, global debt to GDP, for example, is 365%. You know, the global economy has never been sort of more over levered in order to sort of bring down that denominator from 365 to say, whatever, 300%, you essentially need to try to grow your way uh, to, 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 to lower that ratio. And one, one way to lower that is obviously to have higher productivity, which again, is going to rely on more energy. I don't think we're necessarily going to get more productivity. Uh, so what they'll probably policymakers will opt to do is basically hit control P and just basically try to print productivity, uh, through central bank balance sheets. So that's, that's hopefully recaps everything Rich said, because I think that was really a good masterclass. Uh, Keith, I kind of want to get your thoughts. Uh, if you have any additional commentary on, on what uh, Rich or I just said, and then of course, uh, pivoting to, to Russia, Ukraine, and some of the geopolitics on that front. Yeah, Rich hit a, uh, hit a pretty good home run. You hit it pretty well there, Rich. Uh, just some things to add to it. Uh, again, for everyone to understand two things, climate change policies are being adopted by the Western world. And that, that's what oh, the right. main driving that. course is, is happening here. So we'll talk a little bit about that. The other thing is what people don't understand is all of like shipping and transportation around the world, it, it runs on oil. It, it needs energy to move. So you can't simply, people talk about, hey, cars becoming electric. And that's another thing. They got to get their electricity off the grid, which most times is coming from oil or coal anyway. Um, you know, the alternative, you know, like wind and, and, and hydro, it is increasing, but it's still quite small relative to everything else. But like all these shipping containers that are moving around the world, like they're, they're not being powered by wind or hydroelectrical, like they, they need oil to do that. And then of course we have uh, natural gas, of course, you know, you can push that in pipelines if you're allowed to build a pipeline. Um, those that are allowed to build a pipeline, if you want to ship it across water, you have to liquefy it. So you have LNG, liquefied natural gas. And when they put that gas on a ship, guess what's going to power the ship? Wind? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and again, with airplane, like, it, it, you know, it, it go back to what, 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 Rich, what Rich was saying. So it's, and the other thing to share with everyone, like, so for example, here in Canada, so our, um, now our Minister of Natural Resources, guess what his job was before? Climbing towers. Peanut yeah, salesman? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. He was, you know, he was the minister for, uh, well, I don't know what the department, but climate policy, basically. So he's, you know, he's very much on the green side. So, you know, that's why- He was why climbing, the, oh, he, he, they, he, let's, for everyone who doesn't know, he, was, he climbed the CN Tower in protest uh, for- Anti, it was a, it was an anti-oil offender. He climbed the CN Tower and literally was arrested. Like he was a Greenpeace ago. activist. He was right. He was big in Greenpeace, and he, yeah. So. Okay, so I mean, it, it's fine to share your views on stuff, right? That that's sometimes it's unacceptable, but sometimes it is acceptable. Uh, but the point is, though, for Canada, you know, there there were some pretty big policy headwinds against the Canadian energy sector. You know, there will be opportunities. Um, you know, I, I believe strongly in this theme called abandoned assets. I mean, that, that's out there as, as well. But from a global perspective, uh, from my view, is that if you're really bullish on oil, uh, Canada may not be the place to play that if you're doing it from, say, an equity market perspective. But, we, but you know, but Rich hit on all, all the key points there. One other thing to share with you, how complicated the energy complex is. Uh, so this is, again, is, is anecdotal and, you know, you take it for what it is. It's my understanding that one or two board members of Exxon were appointed by BlackRock because BlackRock is, you know, they host most of the shares through their funds that they're managing. And, and they're really big on ESG these days. Um, that's the direction they're gone. And whether you like it or not, that's, it, it is what it is. So they're specifically put on the Exxon board. So, you know, the, the biggest publicly traded oil company in, in the world, energy company in the world, you know, to, to get these guys to stop producing oil and everything, basically. 
And uh, what Exxon did, and again, this is what I'm, I'm hearing for some guys I know. They said, okay, this is not a bad thing. We're going to train these two new board members or educate them on what's really happening and how important it is, oil is, to the economy, to our social system, political system, financial system, and, and, and so forth. And what happened is gradually these two new board members, they're, they're coming on side. Now they're starting to appreciate that you just simply can't cut off oil and, you know, let's, let's start producing alternative energy. Again, it's extremely difficult. Um, you know, as Rich said, with, with global demand, um, you know, at worst, it stays flat. I mean, I, again, I, I don't, I, again, I think all the fundamental factors are, are very strong for oil. From a financial market perspective, we're, we're going to get ebbs and flows here. And uh, so this is where I'm excited about. And we can still have a super spike coming in, in oil. And um, I don't think it's going to be that super. But again, you really have to distinguish between the, the economic and, and policy side and the long-term factors that are going to drive the price of oil with the short-term financial markets. Because things can get out of whack pretty quickly. And so this buy and hold strategy with oil, I don't think it, it, you're going to get some great opportunities to sell what you have and better opportunities to, to load up again. Um, but a lot of the models that we look at right now, you know, oil has crude oil might have a bit more upside to it, but you might get a really great opportunity to add even, you know, to, to reload, add even more to it. So, so that's all what I have there on, on this sector. I, again, incredible long-term opportunity. Can I round this out and, and just make my last two points that I think are really important. Number one, climate change is a serious thing and hopefully human beings will come to terms with the real way of dealing with that nuclear power. But the climate rhetoric, rhetoric obfuscates what a marvel of engineering and science, the exploitation of fossil fuels really is and how cheap energy has been vital in emancipating the world's poor. And that is something I want to drill into everyone, whether you're listening to this or not. And I think that, and the other thing that I think that's really, really important is, you know, and it's a Pyrrhic victory uh, with respect to the financial markets. It's a Pyrrhic victory. Um, what's a Pyrrhic victory? It, I think he was a Greek general. Basically, he won the battle. Sorry, he won the war, but every single one of his soldiers was killed. I can't remember his real name, but it's called it's something term called a Pyrrhic victory. And, you know, unless both supply and demand change in tandem, all this climate policy is going to have the perverse effect of making large oil companies even more attractive, notwithstanding the near-term fluctuations. And that's, that's the two main takeaways I, I want. That's really what I've been trying to, that's what I've been itching to share with you guys. And so thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. And, and, um, Obviously, but Canada's the third largest. Uh, yeah, third or producer. fourth? No, it's yeah. the fourth largest. So you got U.S., Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Canada. So speaking of of Russia and oil and and whatnot, uh, Keith, I don't know if you want to give everyone because you know even when the CBC News starts reporting it, uh, you know it's clearly important. Uh, Russia, you Russia, Ukraine, you know this kind of standoff. Can you kind of dumb this this whole? Di- he could get dumbed down this whole situation where it's geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for everyone that's kind of paying attention, doesn't really know what's going on. And obviously what this might, first of all, dumb it down for us. And then second of all, how you, how are you looking at this from like a financial markets perspective? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so it, it's an, I just find it's an incredibly interesting narrative what's happening and geopolitics is always a narrative. It's never black or white or one plus one, it's two. There's so many crazy things. I mean, just a few years ago, I think the Americans were supporting, at the same time, they're supporting uh, ISIS as well as the fighters that were fighting against ISIS, just to give you an example of how wacky things can be. So so the real, I'd like to conclude first, okay? So first of all, with, with the Ukraine, um, you don't need to worry about war happening. It's basically... Um, President Biden in the U.S., he, he's incredibly weak right now domestically. And uh, what's been what's happening in Ukraine and being, uh, you know, megaphoned by the mainstream media, it, it's really a, a great way to for the White House to create a distraction from a, a lot of the negative things that are happening domestically. And 
you know, you're all, you're going to get, you know, you know the, the classic, you know, in, in whenever there's a, a global crisis, you, you get the real late night video. I mean, uh, I think Obama has done it, you know, Bush has done it, Clinton has done it, and everyone are like two or three in the morning and they got bloodshot eyes and, you know, they, they solve, it's never solved at one in the afternoon. It's always like late night in America when, when it happens, but uh, something will, will shift here soon enough that would allow the, the Biden camp to take um, credit or vic- victory for de-escalating the, the situation um, over in Ukraine. Now I'll get into that, what it is. And as soon as that happens, then the media will, they'll swoon over this. So, um, you know, the CNNs and, and those guys, like they'll be all, all over this, but understand what, what's happening here. This always happens. So why Ukraine? People say, what the heck is Ukraine? Do you guys remember the Seinfeld show years ago? Do you guys watch that? Maybe well, not. You guys were, you guys were too young. You couldn't stay up that late, right? To watch it when it was on. No soup for you. <laughs> So it's one famous episode. Kramer is playing uh, Risk. And um, he and Newman, they're traveling around the city, New York. And at one point, they're on the subway plane. And all Newman has left is Ukraine. And Kramer has the whole board you know, with his, his army on it. And Kramer says, oh, all you have is Ukraine. Ukraine is weak. And like, obviously, it's this Ukrainian guy standing next to him. Like, obviously, wearing the fur hat and, the, you know, the long olive pleat coat or something. And he slams on the table, Ukraine is not weak. Okay, so let's just talk about Ukraine, whether Ukraine is weak or people would, would like it or not. But that's your boomer story for today. Um, so Ukraine for everyone, you, gotta, you have to understand where it is geographically. You have to understand that the sense of history and economic, say from an economic perspective, man, Ukraine's important. So if you look at, it's the number one producer for sunflower seeds in the world. And then in terms of world rankings for corn, barley, rapeseed, wheat, and, and soybeans, it's like sixth, seventh, or ninth in the world. So it's literally the, the bread basket, you know, for over in Europe and Asia. It, it's incredibly important what they have there. So it, it's always important for the Russians to have access to these, even though the Russians produce a lot of, produce a lot of the same stuff at the same time. Um, you also have to think about uh, years ago when uh, Stalin was in power, when the communists were in, in Russia. Um, just horrible stories. But, um, you know, Stalin marched into Ukraine and basically stole all the wheat and you know, manufactured a, uh, a pretty severe drought there where many, many people died as a result of that. So uh, just, just, you know, we saw Stalin's, they call it Stalin's gold. So it, it's, again, like interesting stories. There's actually a movie out now. I think, I think it's called Mr. Jones just came out a couple of years ago, but it, it's, it sort of touches on, on that aspect as well, how important Ukraine is, you know, to the Russians. From a geographic perspective, Russia has basically three major seaports. So they're up in the Arctic and it gets kind of cold in the Arctic and it's expensive with the icebreakers to do stuff. Then you have another one way the hell over on their east coast over in Asia, over in the Pacific. And that's not that effective either sometimes. And then they have access to the southern, to the Black, is it Black Sea? I think it is, Rich. Yeah, and Black Sea. Yeah so, yeah, so warm water ports. And the Sea of Azov, I think is how you say it. My pronunciations are not very good. Sorry. A lot of things. So yeah, but that's, that's correct. So having access to the warm water seaports it, again it, it's such an, an incredibly important uh tool or, st- or strategic tool f- for the russians to have with ukraine as well uh i'm going to make up the number but probably 25 percent of it to a third it, it, it is russian so on the eastern part of the country it's it's just from when stalin went in years ago and supplanted the, the put russians down there to grow stuff so the, the russian heritage and language it's already there anyway on that part of the country the rest of the country they're ukraine different language completely they have a dislike for the russians and, and so forth okay so we have all that lined up uh why are the russians ticked off right now because the americans through nato they're threatening to take ukraine within nato or become friends, and they want to set up shop in Ukraine. So this is this is similar to the '60s. So when the Soviets wanted to put missiles over in Cuba, you know the Americans got pretty ticked off about that and said, "Hey, no way, this this ain't gonna fly." So it's sort of analogous to that. You also have Europe is involved, and uh, Europe is is they're in a real tough 
position here right now, guys. Uh, so the Europeans have no military really to speak of. They are reliant upon NATO, which is the Americans for any major protection. And they're not even getting a seat at the table in any of these discussions. So uh, Macron in the US, he actually went to Moscow by himself. And you guys probably saw the, uh, the big long table that they had set up, which is that's just Putin just messing with these guys, right? <laughs> these guys are playing checkers and you know Putin's playing chess, of course. But um, so again, the Americans, they wanna, hey, let, let's keep the Russians you know, you know, on, on edge here. Why do they want to keep the Russians on edge? You know, why is everyone worried about Ukraine all of a sudden? So, um, you know, there, there's always a, there's, there's a theory out there called the World Island. This was written by a guy, it's a book, uh, I think it's William McKinley or, or something like that. I remember a few years back. <clears throat> and he describes the combination of Asia and Europe as, as one big, enormous island around the world. And from an American perspective, you never want one country ruling that enormous island. You always want multiple countries or individuals disagreeing with each other. You, you, you keep the fight over there all the time. So you have the Russians are there. The Europeans are, are pretty weak, really, when you think of it from, from that side. Uh, and then you have the Chinese coming in. So, for example, when, when the Americans just left Afghanistan there recently, um, you know, whether it's right or wrong, you agree or disagree with everything. But the moment they left, there's a vacuum there. And guess who filled it immediately? The Chinese. Right? So the Chinese come in. Do the Russians like that? No, not at all. Not at all. So, again, every point from a geopolitical perspective is, is to keep everyone a little bit off balanced. No one ever is allowed or permitted to get an easy, you know, land grab, you know, so they can take power. Now, I just want to sort of, you know, reduce any stress when it has about bombs being dropped and everything. Um, so I was chatting with another one of one of my friends who's he lives this stuff all the time. Uh, he shared to me that the Russian military, he said, it's it's too small, it, it's underfunded. Um, Moscow is not able to reach any global hotspot. So that's not going to happen. So they can reach places within, you know, basically, a, a, you know, an air quote on, on a drive away from Moscow. But, you know, the Russians aren't ending up in, in Asia or South America or Africa or anything like that. They're, they're, they're Berlin. In, in Berlin, <laughs> right? Uh, so they have that. You know, it, it's not this strong military that everyone is led to believe, you know, through the Hollywood uh, movies. Um, so for the Russians to properly invade Ukraine, they need elite forces, and the majority of their elite forces right now, they have 75 planes that can carry, I think it's three planes, can carry one battalion. So they have about 25 battalions of elite forces, and they're in Kazakhstan right now. And none of those planes have left Kazakhstan. So all this media hype about, hey, the Russians, they're going to invade imminently. What I'm hearing, again, from my network who are, they follow this stuff, you know, if the Russians want to invade, they, they would, you know, they might have success for 48 hours and then they're going to get plucked off. Like it just becomes a complete domestic disaster from the Russian perspective. And does Putin want a, Rus a domestic disaster? No, no, he doesn't need that at all. He just needs to look strong domestically against the outside forces. Biden needs to look strong domestically versus the outside forces and same with the French and the Germans and, and so forth. So I, I suspect this is going to blow over uh, the likelihood. Oh, by the way, this is I'll throw this out for Rich. Rich is going to drop his jaw. And I want to tell you this one. Uh, I've also heard that there's a pretty big entity out there that can print money that's been buying oil to drive it up as well. So uh, the probability of oil coming off, you know, as soon as this stress is or the situation is de-stressed, uh, all, all this can can work together here. So the bottom line is, you know, don't get too worked up over this. Another good friend of mine as well, he's really in the energy markets. You know, one of his all these different you know commandments that he'll follow. And, uh, you know, I think number four on his list, he'll tell you, he's a key fact, during, during any... Uh, increased risk of war, that's when you sell oil. You're not buying oil at that point. You know, you're buying at another time. But anyway, I hope that sort of simplified what's happening over there a little bit, maybe, Steve and, and oh, Rich. Long, long story short, it, sound, it sounds like it's just a lot of like political grandstanding that both counterparts are basically just trying to look strong politically. I mean, I get Biden, obviously, you know, low 
and falling approval ratings uh, as a distraction. And is it your view that that like Putin's sort of the same thing? Like it's just this is just kind of political grandstanding to to look good domestically for him, or is there like a genuine intent to actually move on Ukraine? No, just so I mean, they they would. I think you know, effectively, they already controlled Eastern Ukraine anyway. Because remember, it's Eastern Ukraine is already Russian. That's that's just the way it, it it's set up, and people must say no, it's not. But it from is. a language perspective, cultural perspective, is, do, you, do you see that as well, Rich? I mean, that's what yeah, absolutely. Well. No, there's there's loads of maps with with with, with yeah. respect to both ethnically Russian as well as simply the language, and the language is very very important. And also like places like Odessa which is one of the largest cities, Kiev, like Odessa is like 60% or whatever it is. Half the people there are Russian. Kiev, I'm looking at the chart right now. It's like 25% Russian. I mean, there's loads of, I mean, it's a weird place, right? They, historically, the Ukrainians hate the Russians, but there's loads of Russians who live there. And then there's, it's, I mean, Ukraine was part of Russia for a long, long time. You know, it's, it's, it's messy. It's messy. So what, what would you say, Keith, like is your ultimate like takeaway if you're just kind of, saying this to the average Canadian, be like, Hey, here's, you know, here's what this kind of means to you. Like, I feel like most, a lot of Canadians, at least my, what I gather after that, you know, long, but educational spiel is kind of like, okay, so this doesn't really impact me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to be worried about things around the world. So I, I wouldn't be worried about Ukraine. I mean, hopefully I'm not wrong on this, but Again, like probabilities are never zero, 100% and everything. But I would, you heard me before say the probability of this happening is quite high now. The probability of Ukraine, you know, just escalating to this insane, crazy moment, I, it's not as high as, as what you're hearing in, in the media and stuff like that. So can I give some yeah. color just as to, I think there's two things that I think deserve some color. Um, one people may or may not know about NATO is um, NATO has this Article 5 thing, um, which is if you're part of NATO and one of the nations in NATO gets attacked, so countries in NATO are Canada, you, there's a bunch of them, but the big ones are Canada, UK, um, France, Spain, uh, Germany, Turkey's part of NATO. If any of these countries are attacked by a foreign aggressor, um, there's something called an Article Five gets triggered, and all the it's effectively you're attacking any and all other countries in NATO. So that's if you don't if you're not aware of that, that's a little bit of a detail that I think's worth noting. The other thing that I think um, why is Biden under pressure for Canadians who don't necessarily pay attention too much to American politics? I've written down sort of four or three and a half things that I think are really important: uh, the mask mandate for kids. Um, max mask and mandates like it or lump it that's what's happening there's something called critical race theory which is absolutely not the place to be talking about that but it's just that's real someone who pays a lot of attention to american politics i can guarantee you that's something that's going to have the affect the midterms and of course the thing that we are bored of talking about here is the same in america which is inflation which is even higher there so going into the midterms biden is is basically going to get absolutely creamed and and um, and I agree with Keith with respect. So that was the other, just the other thing. And then finally, Keith, on the Ukraine side, which you didn't mention, which is the Ukrainian military has massively, massively increased in the last seven or eight years since, um, since Russia annexed Crimea, um, which is the tiny little peninsula in the Black Sea, um, which is one of the only um, deep water, warm weather ports. Um, so, but since that happened in 2014, Ukraine's military strength is, is, you know, trebled in personnel size and they have things like javelin anti-tank missiles and all this crap that basically countries, um, that want to destabilize that region have basically handed them over. So there you go. That's, that's my piece. I don't know, Keith. So I'll, 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 yeah. But just one thing, yeah, sorry, Rich, just one thing to add here. I mean, think about this from a. From a, everything's about power in the world. That, that's what it's about. Not for the loony hour, of course, but it's, you know, we're doing other cool things. But from the American political perspective, just, just imagine for a moment, Biden can all of a sudden resolve the Ukrainian crisis and the inflation crisis at the same time. Oil comes plummeting down. You, the bad Russians are defeated. Just in the nick of time, you know, for the 
all the campaigning to start. So it's uh, that, that's what I, th I see coming down. I have a visitor here. Do you guys want to see my visitor? Is it Willis? Yeah. He's harassing Keith. <laughs> oh, he's huge. Jeez, <laughs> the thing is bigger than Keith. So this that is, is big, Willis. Yeah, that is a uh, that is a big boy. Yeah, everyone loves Willis, right? Yeah, Willis, Willis likes his Twinkies too. <laughs> um. So yeah. So I mean, I guess you know, ultimately, just to kind of you know wrap things up here, um, we're approaching the the loony hour. Um. But yeah, a lot, a lot of politics being played out really uh, across the globe. Uh, I think looking for distractions. I think Canada, you know, you know, homegrown here. We certainly have a lot of distractions going on ourselves. You know, the the trucker protests. I think, you know, what we can see with the with the uh, you know the Trudeau government. You know, obviously shutting down. You know, now freezing bank accounts. You know, if your political views don't quite align. Uh, certainly a bit of a slippery slope. We're not necessarily going to get into that today. Um, well, I do yeah, have a seems... quick comment on that, by the way, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Uh, so uh, I'm in, in a couple, uh, you know, these, these WhatsApp groups that the younger kids use. Um, and, you know, one of them is, is a lot of European-based and American-based traders. And um, they're all like this morning, uh, four or five of them have reached out to me and said, hey, what's going on in Canada? So in Canada, if there is or isn't a lot of concern with what happened in uh, from the announcement out of Ottawa a couple of days ago, we're like, hey, you blow it off, no big deal. Foreign investors do consider it a big deal. So if all of a sudden, again, say you're thinking about investing 200 million capital to build a new building or facility to do this or that, and all of a sudden you think, holy smokes, if the government wanted to, they could immediately come in and, and shut it down or access our cut off our bank account, stuff like that. And again, it's, it doesn't, it's irrelevant whether you say, Hey, that's, that's a great point or stupid foreign investors are now talking about that this week. So you, and I always tell everyone, you always have to view your own country the way that people from outside the country are going to view it. And, and so this was not a positive policy move by Ottawa this week. It, it may have made uh, uh, a lot of a lot of different groups domestically happy, but outside of Canada, it was not a winner, like not at all. So that's that's the thing I wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think like polit politically, it seems like there's a lot of a lot of pressure. Uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of friction, a lot of divide. Uh, I think approval ratings uh, on the Trudeau side, obviously, again, probably similar to the Biden side. Whether you like them, like them, dislike them, doesn't really matter. But I think it's it's pretty evident, and and I think this is a lot, a lot of politics playing out here. Again, you know, anytime in Canada, you got you know again a 30 year inflation print, home prices are going through the roof. You know, up 20. Uh, nationally we didn't talk about but uh the latest data came out you know up 28 percent year over year on a national basis that's an all-time record high you know growing at three percent per month like yeah it's 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 not a good situation here and and obviously you know seeing seeing more of these policies it seems like things are kind of unraveling here so hopefully we can get our uh shit together pardon my french but um and uh, the other thing, the other yeah. thing that I think is really, I think the other thing that should frustrate Canadians, like whether or not you think those truckers should go home or not, uh, to me is becomes less relevant. I, I got to throw this in there. The amount of money that is laundered in Canada to buy real estate that, that Steve may or may not be selling to these people or, and the amount of money that's run out of British Columbia that's selling fentanyl and the money laundering that's related to that and the thousands of upon thousands of people that have died from fentanyl overdoses that is directly related to the money laundering and the fact that zero basically zero has been done with respect to financial crimes in fact, financial crime units have been mothballed in British Columbia. These are federally mandated RCMP. Um, like this idea that, you know, that they're after, like it's, it's, it's a, even if you think that all these truckers should go home right now, you must recognize how cynical um, this financial crimes angle is. And, and frankly, I think we, we should, as Canadians, should demand better, whether it's a RICO Act in the United States or an IRS equivalent with teeth. 
that to me is just that's my two cents on that it's just it's not okay it's not okay to only attack your political opponents right or wrong again right or wrong just let's let's do something about financial crimes that's my last bit on that no i mean i think you hit the the uh nail on the head here but uh i mean i think it's a good way to wrap it up we'll obviously be monitoring these geopolitical events and 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 how they pertain to you know everyday canadians lives that's what the show is all about right it's just kind of uh you know having an extensive dialogue on on what this means for the everyday person and ultimately how to protect your you know your hard-working capital uh because that's what the show is all about so uh as always we appreciate the support again if you can share this episode with at least one friend uh just to continue to grow the community we always appreciate your love and support And as always, we'll see you next week.